Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. It's a real joy to be with you guys this morning. It's been a while. So, um, and I really feel like God wanted me to talk to you guys this morning about wisdom, which doesn't really make sense because I'm like not very old. But uh, the reality is the scripture tells us that uh, if we ask God for wisdom, he's going to give it to us. So I earnestly prayed for that this week. So um, I humbly want to talk about wisdom with you guys today. I know there's far more wisdom in this room uh, than I have. But, you know, one of my favorite books to read through in the Old Testament is actually the book of Proverbs. You guys like the Proverbs? All right. I love the Proverbs. Good. This is starting off good. And the Proverbs, they seem like they're just these lists of disconnected nuggets of advice, advice. But the truth is that the Proverbs are actually much more rich than that. And what the Proverbs do is they, they spell out little by little what the kingdom of God looks like as it's played out practically in the, in the lives of God's people. Because the decisions that we're making every day, the big ones and the small ones, are creating the people that we're becoming tomorrow. Every small decision and big decision. And that's why the Proverbs are chocked full of these if-then, but-or type statements, right? Like the righteous person does this, but the foolish person lives like that. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. And then every once in a while I get real lucky and come across a proverb like uh, 25, 16, my absolute personal favorite. If you find honey, eat just enough, too much of it, and you will vomit. That's really good advice. You're just kind of cruising through the Proverbs, and then you see that, and you're like, yeah, that, that makes sense, Lord. Okay, you just think about it. You're cruising B.C. through the forest. You find some honey. You know what? I think Solomon said something about this. And in light of all these, these wise teachings found in Proverbs, what I want you to do this morning is to Imagine. Imagining's always fun, right? Using the imagination. I want you to imagine that the wisest man in the entire known world decided to write you a letter or an email or a text message, whatever you fancy, whatever gets you in the zone. And in this letter, he wanted to instruct you on how to live your life wisely, how to make your life count to the glory of God, how to follow him in the mundane decisions that we make every single day and the big decisions like where to work, where to live, who to marry, the mundane and the big. And the cool thing is that's exactly what we're going to find in our text today. Proverbs chapter one, and we're going to look through verses one through seven, but we're going to camp out on verse seven. And this is going to be sort of a starting point for making good decisions and living a life that will count. Because as I look around the room this morning, I don't think that there's anyone here that doesn't want to live a life that counts. And the truth is, the decisions that we're making every single day are creating the people that we're becoming tomorrow. The choices that we make are radically important. So Solomon wants to show us how to live wisely and catch this from the perspective of a failed life. Because Solomon ended up in a place that he never, ever thought he would be. It's, it's kind of a haunting story, but 
I've recently um, become semi-obsessed with Johnny Cash. I don't know if you guys have heard of Johnny Cash. He's got a, like a couple of good songs. And yeah, I'm kind of late on this Johnny Cash train, but man, does he have some good music. I uh, haven't seen the movie yet. My mom was telling me about it. Um, but I like reading about this guy's story because he had all these struggles, right? He was a man of faith, but yet he had some pretty, pretty gnarly struggles with drugs and alcohol and women. And one of the last songs that Johnny Cash did was this song called Hurt, which was originally done by this guy named Trent Renzer. And they did this music video, and it was super simple. But in this video, what happens is you see Johnny Cash. He's on the edge of death in this video. He dies shortly after, I think maybe within a year. And then it flashes back to clips of him as a young, vibrant Johnny. It is so emotionally charged. And maybe you're not familiar with the song, but the main course goes like this. He says, What have I become, my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away in the end. And you could have it all. My empire of dirt, I will let you down. I will make you hurt. And Johnny Cash was a radically gifted man, right? And he had the world at his hands in his own day. And yet, he felt inspired to reach out to Trent Renzer at the end of his life to cover this depressed sort of song that asked the question, what have I become? It's, I tear up every time I see the video. It's so emotionally charged, and it depicts the brevity of life, that he made decisions that took him to a place that he never thought he would be. And when I think about Johnny Cash, I can't help but picture King Solomon, right? But yet, King Solomon had far more knowledge and influence and prestige and money than Johnny Cash could ever even imagine. And yet, King Solomon came to a similar end as Johnny Cash and many other contemporary people who follow God with struggling decisions. So with that, let's, let's just go to the text. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, culminating in verse 7. And we're going to pray and talk about this. And these verses serve as a prologue to the book of Proverbs. This is kind of introduction to the book. Verse 1 says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteous justice and equity, to live prudence, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge and discretion. A man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. And the verse for today. The fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let's pray. Lord, as we get into your word, I ask that that you would anoint me to, to divide your word accurately. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't leave confused on this colossal truth that we find in scripture, that it would be clear to us that our holy, reverent fear of, of you is a good thing. And, and it will inform the decisions that we are making. So would you, by your Spirit, give us understanding of your word this morning. And we ask this in your Son's holy, precious name. Amen. So as we're reading through these verses, 
and he's showing us where wisdom begins, it's almost surprising, right? I mean, this is a really popular scripture. If you weren't acquainted with the Bible, you would think maybe wisdom starts somewhere else. You might think you would say love is the beginning of wisdom or sacrifice is the beginning of wisdom or books and education and university. Maybe those are the beginning of wisdom. Or Aristotle, who said, knowing yourself is the beginning of wisdom, would all seem like a more logical place to start. But, but no, Solomon said, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And I think that's a really intriguing phrase. Because if you really ponder over that, I think it makes a lot of sense, right? That there is a holy God who is infinitely offended by sin. He says that the beginning of all of our decisions should flow out of a reverent fear of God, that we will all stand before one day. Because understanding who God is, right? That he he sent his own son, that he slaughtered his own son on the cross, deserves our most reverent fear as we course the chart of our lives. I mean, it's so intriguing to me that the book that you're holding, if you have a Bible in your hand, despite what you think it is, the word of God or not, depicts a God who looks down from heaven and says, the uneducated, unskilled, impoverished person who fears God in the midst of all of his or her life decisions is beyond wiser than the most educated, Ivy League, brilliant, business-owning man or woman who gives little or no regard to God. That's the God of the Bible. He looks down and says that those who do not lean on their own understanding is actually a wise person. He says this irrelevant person in the eyes of the world who fears me is far wiser than the upper echelon of society who gives little regard to me. It's an amazing thought. And what Solomon wants to show us today is a lens by which we can make our lives count to the glory of God. Because don't we all want to come to the end of our lives saying, although the departure has come for me, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the course, and I have kept the faith. I want to say that. It's like Paul said to Timothy. So today we're going to look at Solomon's life as this sort of object lesson. And we're going to start doing this by going to 1 Kings chapters 3 and 4. So we're going way back, old school. It's between Samuel and Chronicles. And what we're going to see is Samuel started off really, really, really good, but he didn't end up anywhere close to where he started. So 1 Kings chapter 3. And the context, the context here, excuse me, is that King David has just died. And now Solomon, a young man, is in the position to take over the kingdom. And he's feeling terribly inadequate for such a position. And we pick up the text in verse 6, and he's actually in a dream praying to the Lord. So it's kind of like an inception sort of thing. I can't wrap my hand around that. But verse 6 says, Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of the heart towards you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne, as it is this day. Verse 7. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go in or come out. 
And your servant is in the midst of your people which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. And then verse 9, his request. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Verse 10, this is God's response. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, because you have asked this thing and you have not asked for yourself long life, nor asked for yourself riches, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself a discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart. And look at this, so that there has been no one like you before, nor shall no one arise like you afterwards. That's an incredible scene that God gave Solomon this supernatural wisdom. But it's amazing because of all the things in the earth that Solomon could have asked for, he asked for a wise mind to discern what is right. He asked for wisdom. I mean, could you imagine becoming king overnight? I mean, that's going to require a few decisions, yeah? And so he'd asked for this wise, discerning mind and as i was reading this i especially weeks when i'm doing the message i always find it funny how we only feel desperate for god's wisdom and the pressure cookers of life yeah and the truth is we're actually always desperate for god's leading and guiding because i'm like i'm saying the mundane decisions that we're creating and making choices towards every day are gonna create the people that we're gonna become but sometimes it just takes adversity and uncertainty to come to the conclusion that we always need God, especially for wisdom. But check this out. Over in the next chapter, chapter 4, we can actually see the wisdom played out in the Solomon's life. And this is so crazy. Verse 29 says, Now God gave Solomon wisdom and a very great discernment and the breath of the mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of the Egypt's of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, and then the text mentions some names, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He spoke three thousand proverbs. His songs were a thousand and five. That's more than Johnny Cash. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. And men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon, from all the kings of the earth who heard of his wisdom. And you see, Solomon had this incredible capability to understand the world and animals and plants and people. And he could transition this head knowledge to a precise application in any sort of situation, which is the essence of wisdom. The difference between the two is Wisdom is walking in the truth, but knowledge is merely understanding what that truth is. And he could bring that knowledge into action. So this is the the context of the book of Proverbs. As we're thinking about our letter or email or text message, whatever it is that you fancy. The wisest man, let's catch this. The wisest man who ever walked the earth giving the truest wisdom to the people of God. And not only that, but that the wisdom that he received was supernaturally given to him by God. And I think sometimes when we come to the book of Proverbs, we come detached from the truths because 
if we uncover what the roots of each book of the Bible is, especially Proverbs, I think its implications are always astounding. And I'll tell you why. Because the Proverbs for us pose an absolute reality check. Because we have a man who was absolutely anointed by God and understanding, but yet we know he didn't become the person he wanted to become. And when we read the Proverbs, it's almost haunting because we're reading words that a man wished he would have lived. For example, one of my favorite verses, Proverbs 4.23, Solomon says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. The New Living Translation says, Catch this. The wisest guy ever living tells us this. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. That's, that's, a, pretty, that's a pretty heavy little section of Scripture right there that, that this gives us a reality check. And, and don't miss this. He's saying whatever we're giving our heart allegiance to will determine the people that we will become. He's saying that a nominal devotion to God will end up in ruin. And we can see this played out in his life in 1 Kings 11.4. It'll come up on the screen so you don't have to turn there. Verse 4 says in chapter 11, For when Solomon was old, his wives, which he was commanded not to do, turned his heart away after other gods. gods. And catch this, his heart was not wholly completed Entirely, totally, 100% devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. So we can see Solomon's heart was turned away from God by these idols that, that captured his heart. And it all started with him taking the commands of God lightly. And then in turn, he lost his fear of God. And this new idol worship took him to a place that he never thought he would be. And the crazy thing is Solomon had it all, he knew it all, and he seen it all. And I don't know, could you imagine if if you had a bigger bank account or a higher promotion or more prestige or or more intelligence, do you think that you would be satisfied? Um, Solomon actually left no desire in his life unfulfilled. He had more prestige than us, more intelligence than us. He had more money than us. The scripture even mentions that the guy had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Like, does it even make sense? Like, I'm having trouble with one, like 700. And uh, that doesn't make sense. When you're reading through Kings, you're like, Solomon, don't do that. So he left no turn, no stone unturned in his life. And, And yet he came to the conclusion of his life with the same one that he started with. And isn't that the the flavor of the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you're not familiar with this book, it's a really, really, really good read. It's actually one of the first books that I read after following Christ. And as I was slugging for, you know, through the first 11 chapters, I felt myself like spiraling down into this like mini depression. I was like, how is this even in the Bible? Like, what is this? And just to give you a flavor of the book, um, I want to read some of the first verses that Solomon wrote. And this is from the New Living Translation. Listen to this. Everything is meaningless. That's a good start. (laughs) Or vanity of vanities. Okay, yeah, that's great. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher or preacher. Completely meaningless. 
What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Okay, imagine me. I'm, I just came to Christ. I'm reading my Bible here. Generations come and they go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and it sets and hurries around to rise again. The winds blow south and they blow north. Around and around it goes in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. And then water returns again to the rivers and the flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are never content. History merely repeats itself. It's all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here's something new, skinny jeans. But actually, it's old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past and in the future generations. No one will remember what we're doing now. Yikes. And then I was like, okay, chapter two, that'll be better. No, got a little bit worse, actually. And I was like, I'm I'm slugging through, Lord. There's definitely going to be some sort of salvation in here. And the book goes on and on like this. Solomon exploring different avenues of life all the way to the very end. But you know what? Solomon found it all meaningless. He found it all vanity. And he came to a final conclusion in the book. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, he says this. Now all has been heard. This is the end of this guy's life, probably. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God And keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And the the depressing thing is, Solomon wasted his life to come to the same conclusion that he started with. And he wasted his life trying to find the next thing and catch this, all the while maintaining a nominal devotion to God. He still knew God in all this, but yet he sought the next thing while maintaining this nominal devotion to God to only come to the conclusion that he started with. So at this point, I think we should probably talk about what is the fear of the Lord? That would probably be a good thing that we should leave with. How can we understand the fear of God as a starting place for making healthy and good decisions as we chart out our lives. Well, first of all, I think it's important to tell you guys what the fear of God is not, because no one needs to leave confused on that. So this doesn't mean for the Christian, the one who has chosen to follow Christ, that we cower away from God. That actually in 1 John 4.18, it's very clear that there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with, with punishment. The scripture is beyond clear that the Christian is not going to deal with punishment, but Christ has taken our punishment on himself. So as a people, we're free to radically love because of what we've been forgiven of. And not only that, but the Christian has passed out of death into life. Jesus himself said, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins but they have already passed from death into life. And to take all of this even further, God actually beckons the Christian to enter into the throne room of God boldly. So we're not to fear God as though his wrath is hanging over us because Christ has already taken that on the cross. But here's the caveat or the the holy tension, if you will. We're not to approach God 
and a cavalier spirit that is just totally disconnected from holiness. Because God is utterly holy and He causes people to be set apart as He is. I like how John Frame, a leading American theologian, explained the fear of God. He said, the fear of God, this is so good. The fear of God is that basic attitude of reverence and awe that inevitably carries with it a desire to do God's will. That's a really good definition of the fear of the Lord. I like what Oswald Chambers said also, and just a little plug for Oswald Chambers. He wrote this devotion called My Utmost for His Highest. It's incredible. I just want to throw that out there real fast. It's one of the best devotions I've ever read. But he said, the remarkable thing about God is when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you fear God, you fear everything else. I can't help but picture Caleb and Joshua going into the promised land. So these men are saying that we're to approach God in a reverent fear that informs the way we conduct our lives, the way that we make decisions. And it's this really beautiful paradox, right? Because God is drawing himself to us. He's drawing us to repentance and a holy fear of himself, but he's doing it all through his own kindness. And that's an incredible truth that we are radically loved by God, but as Hebrews 11.31 says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And The truth is, I don't think that we're ever going to be able to wrap our minds around this paradox until we begin to really know who God is. And the only way we can cultivate this holy, reverent fear of God is in His presence. We can read the Bible cover to cover, but until we begin to know who God is through relationship and not religion, we're never going to understand this holy tension that He is holy, but yet we are radically loved that he draws us to repentance through his own kindness. These are oxymoronic statements. But that's who our God is. And you're never going to understand that until you spend time in his presence. And the cool thing is Solomon really understood this at the get-go. He really understood this. You see, Solomon had the very special privilege excuse me, of building the first temple, which was completed in 960 B.C., And it took seven long years to complete. And you would think that such a beautiful, grand temple could have easily been reduced to a place of religiosity, which it surely did down the road. But upon the completion of the temple, we find Solomon praying a prayer of dedication. I want you to notice that this is in 1 Kings chapter 8. I want you to notice that this is right when the thing's built. He's not placing the emphasis on the beauty of the temple but the awe-inspiring God. This is so good. But will God really live on earth? This is after the temple was built. But will God really live on earth? Why, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Nevertheless, listen to the prayer and my plea, O Lord my God. Hear the cry, the prayer that your servant is making today. May you watch over this temple day and night, this place where you have said, my name will be there. May you always hear the prayers I make towards this place. May you hear the humble and earnest request from me and your people Israel when we pray towards this place. Yes, hear us from heaven where you live. And when you hear, forgive. So you notice that Solomon's taken a posture of humility 
towards God. And he's not placing the emphasis on the beauty and the grandeur of the temple, but he's placing the emphasis on God. Not on an institution, not on a building, but a relationship. And this is actually one of the very highest points of Israel's history. As the the temple was inaugurated, it, it, it served its rightful purpose. It was a place where people could meet God. And, and don't miss this. This is really key. The kingdom of Israel flourished as the people were ruled by a king who feared the Lord. They, they flourished when Solomon had a holy fear of the Lord, when they had a king who was wise. And as we read this, this really high point, we can't help but wonder, like, where did you go wrong, Solomon? When I'm reading through 1 Kings, I just want to scream to him, like, no, don't do that. Because if, we, if we've read the rest of the Old Testament narrative, we, we know what's coming. It's not long until Solomon turns his heart towards lesser things, and he actually turns his heart towards the things that he's warned us not to turn our hearts toward over and over in Proverbs. Uh, just for example, listen to these almost unbelievable verses a couple of chapters later in 1 Kings 11. Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And here's that word again. He did not follow the Lord completely, 100%, entirely, as David his father had done. And then verse 7, this is shocking. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifice to God. It's almost unbelievable when you read that, but don't miss that. He was still maintaining some sort of a relationship with the Lord while he was seeking all these other things. And as he let these lesser things capture his heart, his complete devotion to God was lost. You see, God always calls for the whole heart of man and woman. And as a result, you guys don't miss this, as his worship life was misdirected, his wisdom fades. As his worship life was misdirected, his worship faded. When he lost his fear of God, he lost his way, he lost his wisdom. Church, being wise is not about being smart, but being wise at its foundation and most core level is about fearing and following God. That is the very essence of wisdom. And, and Solomon's life shows us a mirror of ourselves. Don't miss this. Left to ourselves, we are prone to worship and follow after the wisdom of this world while maintaining a nominal relationship to the Lord. It's a really scary thing. Jeremiah picked up on it when he talked about how deceitful the heart was. We have this capacity within ourselves to justify idols while allowing our fear of God to diminish, all the while keeping a nominal devotion to God. It's a scary place that we don't want to find ourselves. As Teba was singing early, we never want to lean on our own understanding, but on the understanding of the one who is truly wise, while diminishing our fear of God. So, but this is where things get good, right? Because we live on the other side of the Old Testament. Unlike Solomon, this is where our story takes a different turn because the beauty is we don't look to King Solomon as an example of wisdom, but we actually look to someone who's far, far greater than Solomon, a king who brings heavenly wisdom to this earth. And we get little pictures of this in Isaiah 11, 3, 1 through 3. It says, 
a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Speaking of this king's lineage, from his roots will branch, will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. You see, this king comes as a ruling king, making decisions at his own expense to the father's glory and actually for the good of others, even to the extent of his own death. That's, That's true wisdom right there. And Paul explains it this way in Colossians chapter 2. He says, In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, wisdom starts at a humble submission to this king, King Jesus. So really the truth is, if we were to tease it out, who we will become depends on what we do with Jesus in this life. And it starts at a holy, reverent fear of who he is, that he is God. And as I begin to close this down, I want to I wanna share with you guys the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus just preaches this gnarly sermon that's, you know, the most famous sermon across Scripture, where Jesus basically separates the wise from the educated. And what he does in this parable at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount is he gives us a vignette of two different lives that have Two completely different endings. And it all depended on what they did with his words. Matthew 7, Jesus said, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had the foundation on the rock. We're really familiar with these verses, but imagine yourself being at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus says this and drops the mic and leaves. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. You don't see a lot of houses on sand down there. Then the rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And then the Sermon on the Mount just ends like that. And Jesus leaves us a question that we must always and continually ask ourselves. Are we building our lives on Christ through action? Or are we deceiving, our, deceiving ourselves Excuse me, through a nominal devotion to God, which will be something built on sand? Because this choice will decide the person that we will become towards the end of this life. So as we enter into a time of worship, Let's just ask God for wisdom because God has promised us in Scripture to give us wisdom whenever we ask. And that's a beautiful promise from God. And and God knows where each one of us are this morning, the decisions that we have to make, the decisions we've already made. There's no more condemnation in Christ if you're struggling over a decision that you made a long time ago. You've got to move on from that. But as you move forward, as you lay everything behind and you press forward to God into Jesus... Ask for wisdom as you want to become the person that he desires you to be. So let's just pray. Father God, we, um, Lord, we're just desperate to hear from you and to know you day by day, God. We ask that you would just pour out your spirit in this place. God, I pray that you would help us to not be distracted by things in our mind that are less than you, but we've come here to meet 
with you, the creator of the universe, Lord, and, and we just want to follow you. Sometimes it's, it's difficult, Lord, to know where you're going, but Lord, that's why you draw us ever so close to yourself. So would you just give us a fresh perspective of who you are this morning and give us wisdom, Lord, so that we can make wise choices. Help us to understand that fearing you is the beginning of wisdom. Would your spirit just drive that truth deeper into our hearts this week as we seek to figure out what that means practically? Lord, we, we praise you, and we give you all the honor and glory, and we thank you that you died on the cross for us, Lord. As Paul said in Corinthians, that is the wisdom of God, that the cross is the beginning of salvation and that you saved us for your own glory. And not only that, but you've called us to be ambassadors. Lord, would you give us wisdom as we seek to serve you right? So we praise you and we thank you this morning, God. And it's in Jesus Christ's holy name we pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen.